Well, good afternoon. My name is Keith Adamson, and I tell you what, uh, when I'm in your shoes, and oftentimes I am, uh, I love to know the, a little bit about the heart of the person who's communicating to me. I know most of you probably have no idea who I am. And uh, so what I'd like to do is maybe take a few minutes and share with you who I am, where I come from, and the unique perspective I have before we dive into the topic, if that's okay. So um, I just turned 40, and uh, first and foremost, I'm a husband and I'm a dad. How many of you know that family is where it's at, right? And so the most important thing in my life is my wife, my marriage, my kids. I have two teenage daughters, 17 and 16. So I have a lot of estrogen in my house. And uh, so because of that, we just recently purchased a golden doodle. I needed some testosterone with me. And so I work for an organization called Convoy of Hope. And Convoy of Hope is a relief and development organization. We do a few things. I'm the chief of staff for that organization. Recently, we just showed the gospel with our 90 millionth person. And uh, we're just engaged around the world doing a few things. One of the things we do is disaster relief. And there's a natural disaster. We have, we have teams who partner with governments and uh, more than that, the local church, because the church is what Jesus is building. And the church is God's solution to demonstrate the kingdom of God on the earth. And so we partner with governments, we partner with NGOs, and most of all, the local church. When there's a tsunami, an earthquake, a hurricane, if you've heard of Convoy of Hope, it's probably because of all of the hurricanes that hit the southern shores of our nation. Convoy of Hope was there. Obviously, we partner extensively with FEMA and other orgs there. So we typically make a two-year investment in countries, we don't just show up and drop food and water off, but we help countries rebuild when there's a disaster, a natural disaster. Uh, right now we have teams displaced and mobilized all over the world. We also engage in humanitarian disasters. So right now we're engaged a lot with a lot of the, the multi-million uh, number of Syrian refugees, people who are displaced all over the Middle East, Southern Europe, as well as Africa. It just had a team come back from Uganda, the world's two largest refugee camps. One of them numbers over a million people. You show up and there's this sea of over a million people just in the middle of nowhere. And many of them have been displaced for years. And the number of children, the number of teenagers, the majority of these refugees were told by um, researchers, researchers typically never leave a refugee camp. And um, many of them are sitting in quiet desperation. And so we, we partner and uh, we, we share the gospel and we don't just share it, we demonstrate it. We've seen the Lord do some breathtaking things. So one of the other things we do is we have a women's empowerment program. We empower women. Unfortunately, in a lot of uh, nations around the world, women are not respected. There is not the level of equality that we know exists in the heart of God. And so in a lot of nations where simply because of your gender, you're not allowed to receive an education, you're not allowed to run on the streets. I was just today uh, learning how in some parts of the world as a woman, you can't even go jogging uh, because of how immodest uh, some uh, radicals view that. And so we have a women's empowerment program and we've recently started 5,000. Uh, micro enterprise business solutions through women who have absolutely no hope. A couple weeks ago, I was on the side of a volcano talking with a mom who um, literally had no idea, no one had ever taught her that you can actually look into your future 
and make decisions based on tomorrow. She spent her entire life in survival mode just trying to figure out how to feed her kids that day. And uh, she's recently hired other ladies from her village. It's fantastic. So that's one of many stories we empower women. And then the last thing I'll share with you, we do a lot of other things, but I won't waste your time. But the last thing we do, we have a team of scientists and we teach people how to cultivate the ground. I think it's fitting to mention that here at the Creation Music Festival. We teach people how to cultivate their environment and find sustainable solutions to end the cycle of poverty. Uh, recently, I was on one of our um, uh, passion and dragon fruit farms in Nicaragua, where there's a severe drought zone and farmers for three years haven't been able to grow anything. We sent some scientists there who taught them that um, one of the most expensive fruits on the market is a dragon fruit. Uh, it's in a lot of the energy drinks you're drinking this week. And uh, organic dragon fruit is very expensive. Well, uh, in most parts of the world, most of their farming is organic because they can't afford pesticides. And so we teach people how to cultivate the ground. And I had an opportunity to spend time with some farmers. Uh, these grown, strong men whose hands looked like they could break me in half. And they were crying with me in the middle of the desert because for the first time in years, they're going to be able to produce a harvest and feed kids, feed their own children from the fruits of their personal labor. So that's a little bit about what I do personally and professionally. What I'd like to talk to you about today, though, is uh, more relevant to me spiritually. So I am the first Christian who's ever existed in my ancestry. Uh, this is not my first time at Creation East. I've spoken on the main, main stage in the evenings a few times over the, over the last few years. And um, for those of you that don't know me, Jesus rescued me when I was 17. And um, I come from a, um, a unique childhood where I was steeped in witchcraft and Satanism and drug abuse. I was a very angry, violent person. And Jesus rescued me. And um, I owe everything to him. So today I'm going to talk to you from the perspective, not as the chief of staff from Convoy of Hope, not as a dad, not as a husband, not as a... Or an author or, or any of that, but really from the heart and perspective of someone who owes everything to the one who is ever present and yet we currently don't see him with our physical eyes. And I want to talk to you about you. Because right now in our culture, it seems like the topic of identity is something that a lot of folks are wrestling with, they're dealing with, and it seems to be something that manifests in a variety of areas. So for example, the topic of identity seems to manifest in the area of sexuality. It seems to manifest in the area of what gender am I? How many of you know the topic of identity is a significant issue in our culture, right? And if I was the devil and I wanted to destroy your life, I would think long and hard about what my strategy would be. If I was the evil one, and we know from scripture that he was um, removed, kicked out of heaven because pride was found in him. We can learn about that in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. And when the evil one was kicked out of heaven, we know that he was incited against God the Father, and he wanted to destroy the purpose of God. And we're not exactly sure when it happened, but what we do know from the record in scripture is it happened. And all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see where God speaks 
and everything is created. And then by the time we come to Genesis 3, the serpent comes along. And the serpent is Lucifer, it is Satan, it is the devil. And if I was the devil and I wanted to destroy your life, I wanted to destroy the life of your children, your grandchildren, I wanted to abort the purpose of God in your generation, I would think long and hard about what my strategy is because the moment my strategy and plan became known, you only get one shot to do something the first time, right? So in Genesis 3, we see the strategy of the evil one to destroy the purpose of God. And for the sake of time, I will just quote most of the verses and then I'll read one. We know that it says that in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that the man and the woman were there. And I want to be clear that God did not create Adam and Eve. God created Adam and they were male and female. How do we know that? In Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 it says, In the beginning God created them, male and female. Male and female, God created them and God called their name Adam. So when God would walk through the garden, he would not say, Adam and Eve, come here. He would have said, come here, Adam. And the man and the woman would have come. There was such a unity between the husband and wife that they shared one name. Eve was not named by God. Eve was named by the man. And Eve was named by the man after the fall. Ironically, Eve, her name means two things. It means mother of the living, and it comes from a root word meaning serpent. The same serpent who was there to incite the man and the woman to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we see is one of the negative consequences of the fall of humanity in sin is that Eve's identity was split and half of her identity came from who God said she was and half of her identity came from fallen humanity. Her name, name means Mother of the living, it comes from the root word, serpent. When the man and the woman were in the garden, we know that God said, don't eat the fruit from that tree. This is a story you're familiar with, and actually, maybe you're not, because a lot of Americans I'm finding are not as biblically literate as we would assume they are. So rather than assuming, I'll take five minutes and paraphrase. The man and the woman were in the garden, and there were two trees. There always has to be two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord was clear, whatever you do, please don't eat the fruit from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, the serpent comes. And what does the serpent do? Remember, if I was the devil, I would think long and hard about how to destroy the purpose of God in your life and in the life of your children and your children's children. What does he do? The first thing he does is not, he does not hire an assassin to take out Adam and Eve. He does not put a screen in front of them and try to lure them away with pornographic content. He does not show up with a lucrative amount of money and say, you know what, if you'll just eat the fruit from that tree, I will give you a billion dollars in unmarked bills deposited offshore in a Swiss bank account. He doesn't do that. He does not offer them money. He does not offer them fame. He does not try to tempt them with something sexual. He does not try to assassinate or murder them. He does not even try to get them 
to, quote, divorce one another, what he does is he attacks their identity and the identity of God. That is his initial strategy. He comes in the garden and he says, did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit from that tree? Now, to attack the validity of God's word is to attack God's identity. How do we know that? Because God's word is synonymous with his identity. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That means if you want to know who God is and what God is like, we go to Scripture, right? How many of you know you can't always believe everything you think? You can't always believe everything you feel. Because sometimes your heart will lead you down a road that looks true, and it's not. God's Word is perfect theology and you go to scripture to know who he is and scripture is also like a mirror when you read scripture you not only learn who God is you discover who he intended you to be did God really say you shut you should not eat the fruit from that tree he attacks God's word he attacks the identity of God but he also attacks the identity of the man and the woman. For he says in Genesis 3, For God knows if you eat the fruit from that tree, you will be like God. And I want to suggest to you that they were already like God. They were created in God's image. They were perfect. And after God created humanity, God says it is very good. They were made in God's image. They were like God. And so the serpent comes. He attacks the identity of God. He attacks the identity of the male and the female. And it's almost as if he says this in the garden, and I'm paraphrasing. You know what? God is not who he says he is. And you are not who God says you are. He attacks identity. That was his strategy to abort the purpose of God. And after they eat the fruit from the tree, you, you will read in Genesis 3 where the man and the woman realize that they're naked and they are ashamed and they hide. By the time you come to Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, and I would like to read it to you because it's just, I don't want to take the risk of missing a word. By the time you come to Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, the man and the woman have eaten the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are naked and ashamed. I want to be clear, they were naked before the fall. They became ashamed of their nakedness after the fall. They became ashamed of who they were after the fall. Before sin entered the world, they were perfectly content with who God created them to be. Let me ask you, do you look at yourself? Do you look at your life? Do you look at your past? Do you look at some of the regrets you have? You look at some of the decisions you've made as a parent. If you're like me, you've probably made a few blunders over the years. As a spouse, if you're like me, maybe you've said something you wish you would have never said. As a student, if you are like I was, maybe you look at your life and you think, I never thought I would end up here. The reality is, is the majority of us become ashamed of who we are. And the solution of Adam and Eve is to hide. They're ashamed of who they are. And in verse 8 it says this, And they heard 
the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Erwin McManus, a pastor in California, said this. He said, not only did they know the sound of God's voice, according to this verse, they knew the sound of God's steps. They were so close to God that when God would come walking in the garden, they knew that's not the sound of a rhinoceros. That is not the sound of a woolly mammoth. That is not the sound of an elephant. That is the sound of God. They knew the unique sound that God's footprint made when he walked through the garden. And when they heard that sound, they were hiding because they were ashamed of who they were. When it says God came walking to them in the cool of the day in the Hebrew Bible, it literally says in the wind of the evening. That word wind is a Hebrew word, ruach. It's the word used throughout the entire Old Testament to describe the Holy Spirit. Many scholars tell us that when God comes walking to them in the cool of the evening, he comes in the form, the presence of the Holy Spirit. For we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He comes to them in the garden. And listen to the exchange of conversation. They're hiding. Verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? For just a few minutes, I want to talk to you on the subject of who told you? The moment the man and the woman ate the fruit from the tree, sin entered the world. And because sin entered the world, people today suffer from cancer. Because sin entered the world, marriages today dissolve and fall apart. Because sin entered the world, there are people who wake up every morning and don't have access to clean drinking water and food because sin entered the world, suffering exists because sin entered the world and I'll be there in a week and a half, I'll be back in India where I will drive down the same street and I will look out my car window and I will see the beautiful 25 foot tall ornately carved massive wooden door where in front of that door there will be eight, nine and 10 year old girls wearing seductive clothing with bright pink lipstick and they are sold to the brothel for the equivalent of 200 American dollars. And what we do is we feed these little girls because the leaders of the brothels don't feed them. They abduct them, they kidnap them, they're victims of human trafficking, and they leave them to die. So one of the things we do is we love them, we feed them, and we let them know that there is a love so pure in the world that sometimes and always love gives and it never expects anything in return. I will look out my car door and look at that, and I will see the brothel with little children. That is a direct result of sin entering the world. When sin entered the world, that entered the world too. And when God comes to them in the garden, God does not say, as they're hiding and they're naked and ashamed, God does not come up to the man and the woman and say, what's your problem? What did you do? Don't you see that because you ate the fruit from that tree, now people will be diagnosed with leukemia. Because you ate the fruit from that tree, now children will grow up in a home without a dad. Because you ate the fruit from that tree because of capitalism and colonialism and corporate greed, 
countless millions of people will live and die in poverty so that the rich get richer and the poor become poor because you ate the fruit from that tree those little girls in india will be abdicated to a life of suffering because of perversion and wickedness god does not say that and if i was god that's probably what i would say what's wrong with you because you did that all of this bad stuff is going to happen that's not what god says the first thing out of god's mouth the first thing that god is concerned with is them they're hiding they are naked and they are ashamed and they're hiding and god says why are you hiding I'm, i was afraid we're naked and god says who told you that the first thing that god is concerned with is that adam and i will call her eve are listening to a voice other than god's tell them something about themselves in the garden we see that the strategy of the evil one first and foremost is to attack the identity of god and to, to attack their identity the identity of mankind and womankind and god's primary initial concern is don't you dare believe a voice other than mine when it comes to who you really are now if i was the evil one and i wanted to destroy the purpose of god i would think long and hard about how i would do that so let's fast forward let's go to matthew chapter 3 there's a story where jesus is standing at the jordan river and jesus is baptized by his cousin john the baptist and when he comes up out of the water a voice from heaven speaks it is a story for a believing believer it really happened a voice from heaven speaks and says and i quote this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased god is pleased in his son before jesus heals anybody before jesus preaches a sermon before jesus performs a miracle before jesus dies on the cross the first thing the father says to his son is nothing vocational he does not say i want you to become this it is not professional i want you to learn this it is not directional i want you to go here it is not vocational it is not instructional do this the first thing the father says over his son is relational this is who you are and in the very next chapter matthew 4 who comes the serpent comes the evil one jesus is led by the holy spirit into the wilderness so it's important to understand that not all spiritual dry seasons can be blamed on the devil sometimes what we think is a spiritual dry season is an invitation by god to discover another facet of his amazing tremendous heart jesus is led by the spirit into the dry place and there he comes the evil one this time he is not in the form of a serpent like he was in Genesis 3. This time Lucifer comes himself. And the first thing the evil one does is cast doubt on the identity of God and the identity of Jesus. What does he say? He says, if you're the son of God, do this. Now, what did the father say over Jesus after he was baptized? This is my beloved son. What does the devil say to Jesus in the dry place? If 
you are the son of God. What does he do? He's attacking the very words spoken over Jesus by his father. And I want to suggest to you that Lucifer knew who Jesus was. Lucifer is not coming in the wilderness thinking, boy, I wonder if he's the guy. Is he really the one who's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world? We, we know that Jesus, according to Revelation 13, is the lamb slain for sinners since before the foundation of the earth. That means that Lucifer would have known who Jesus was. Satan does not bring a prostitute in front of Jesus to abort the purpose of God. He does not hire an assassin to kill Jesus to abort the purpose of God. He does not do anything other than attack the identity of Jesus. And if the, the issue of identity is what the evil one used in the garden to try to destroy the purpose of God, if the issue of identity is what he tried to use to destroy the purpose of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who eventually would die on the cross for the sins of the world, thank God. I would suggest to you that the evil one uses the issue of identity to try to destroy the purpose of God in our life as well. And so I want to leave you with just a few simple thoughts. The first would be this. Your identity is not what you do. Your identity is not even who you are. Your identity is not who people perceive you to be. Your identity is not who you pretend to be. Your identity is who you belong to. And regardless of your background, regardless of the decisions you have made, because sometimes we find ourselves at a place in life where we are desperate and lonely and we feel abandoned, and sometimes it is because of the decisions we have made. There are people in, underneath the beautiful canopy of these amazing trees under the sound of my voice, and you have made decisions that have brought negative impact on your life. And that's not who you are. There are also people under the sound of my voice who are suffering and experiencing significant negative impact in your life and it's not because of the decision you made. It's because of the decisions other people have made. Sometimes people in our life break their promises. Sometimes people in our life don't live up to their word. Sometimes people in our life say one thing and do another. Sometimes the hope that we had for our future is sabotaged and it's not because we didn't try hard enough. Sometimes it's because someone else made a decision to take the fruit from the wrong tree. And so maybe you find yourself at a place in life where it doesn't match the the purpose and beauty that God intended for you, whether it's because of your decisions or the decisions of someone else, who you are has everything to do with who you belong to. And you are a son, and you are a daughter of God. 
That means when you go through horrific storms in life, your response to your experience that does not line up with the goodness that you know to be true about God, you no longer respond as an employee. You don't respond as a slave. You don't respond like a stranger. You respond as a son or daughter. Knowing that when you pray and you look into the eyes of God, you see a true reflection of who you really are. And when he looks at you because of what Jesus did on the cross, he does not just see someone who made that horrible mistake when you were 14. That person who for years struggled to put down the bottle of whiskey and you wreak havoc in your family. He does not see that person who looked at things on the internet or your cell phone that you wish you would have never looked at. He does not see the person who struggles with insecurity. He does not see the person who wrestles with self-control and anger. <coughs> what he sees, if you are in Christ, and that's the key, if you are in Christ, what he sees is a beautiful son and a beautiful daughter of God. And when you leave this festival and you go back home, you will probably, if you are like me, experience a situation that does not line up with the beauty and the purpose that you know to be true about God and his amazing sovereign will found in scripture. And don't you dare believe what the serpent says when he comes to you in the garden. When he tries to convince you that God is not who he says he is. And you are not who God says you are. And don't you dare believe the evil one when after you've heard the voice of the Father say, you are my beloved son and you are my beloved daughter, don't you dare believe him when he says, if you really are the son or daughter of God, then do this. Because you don't need to do anything to validate your identity. All you need to do is look and gaze into the face of God to know who you truly are. Jesus does not die for garbage. Jesus did not die for junk. Jesus died for his children. For in John 1 it says, Those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. I'll close with this story and then I'll be done. It's a true story. It really happened. By the time she was in her young 20s, she had been married numerous times. She had had a few abortions and a few children. By this time in her life, her children were taken away by the state because of her abuse of substances and a few failed suicide attempts. She was found to be an illegitimate parent and guardian of her biological children. So the state took them away. Her life fell apart. After another failed suicide attempt, her mom and dad took her to a psychotherapist because they were told by the medical professionals, if you don't get your daughter help soon, next time she seeks to end it, she may actually be successful. And so they put all their hope and they paid 
yet another person to sit down and care about their daughter. And so they took her to the office, they waited in the lobby, and they watched their daughter go into the office and close the door. And she sat down there and the doctor walked her through a process known as reflection. That's when you look back over your life and you try to find that moment, that time where you ended up going down a road that seemed to be the, the crossroad of your life. It's when you think back over your memories and oftentimes we forget what that key crossroad is. It's called suppression. And he was walking her back throughout her life and they came to that moment when she was in second grade. And she was sitting in the classroom. She was not focusing well. She was not sitting in her seat. And the teacher, who I, I'm sure was a great person, just snapped, was having a horrible day, and unfortunately took it out on the young student. And because of a lack of self-control, it produced some momentum in the life of the second grader that years later, unfortunately, would almost become prophetic. And the little second grade girl was not paying attention in school. And the teacher said, you know what, I've had it. I want, I want you to sit down right now. She yelled at her and the little second grade girl sat down in her seat and the teacher proceeded to say to every single one in the classroom, I want every single one of you students to get up, walk up to the chalkboard and write down everything that you dislike about this little girl. And so but one by one, the little elementary students would walk up to the chalkboard and they would write down things. They would write down things like, you're stupid, you're a loser, no one wants to play with you at recess, I wish you'd never been born, all of those things. How many of you know that adults can be cruel and unfortunately children can be too? They write down all of these things on the chalkboard that they dislike about her. And at this point, if you fast forward, the woman is sitting in the office of the psychotherapist and the pain becomes so unbearable, she had suppressed that experience and she forgot all about it. She jumps up and she starts to run out of his office and a boldness came over the doctor and he said, you know what, I'm not finished with you, get back here and sit down. And she stopped at the door and for some reason, she recounted later, she would say, for some reason I stopped and I didn't run away. And for the first time in years, I didn't run away. She always ran away. She ran away to drugs. She ran away to alcohol. She ran away to yet another abusive, malevolent relationship. She ran away yet to another attempted suicide. She always ran away. But for some reason on this day, she takes her hand off the doorknob. She turns around. She doesn't run away. She goes back. She sits down. And she looks into the eyes of the doctor. And he looks at her. And he says, and I quote, you forgot the most important part of that day. Do you remember the little boy who got up from the back of the classroom and he walked up to the chalkboard and he wrote, but I still love you. He said, I was that kid. And I remember you and I remember that day. And unfortunately, you believed everything that everybody said about you except the most important thing. That in the midst of all of those lies, you were still loved. And I want to encourage you because if you're like me, you've got things that have been written on your chalkboard. You've got things and it seems like the longer you live, the longer we live, we accumulate more and more stuff 
on our chalkboard. Sometimes other people write those things. Unfortunately, sometimes we write some of those lies ourselves. And I want to encourage you, regardless of where you're at in life, regardless of what people have said about you, and regardless of what people have done to you, someone still loves you. And at the risk of sounding trite, don't you dare believe everything that's on your chalkboard. Because when you are in Christ, you are loved, not because of what you do, but because of who he is, because of who you are. You are a son and a daughter of God. Who told you those things about yourself on the chalkboard? Because I guarantee it wasn't God. Because he's the one who says, I still love you. That's what I wanted to share with you. If there's anything I said today that resonates with you, um, I can, I'd like to give you something for free. If you're interested, I'll never ask anything from you. Just go to my website, HeathAdamson.com. I've got a book coming out in a few months. I have permission from the publisher to give away a lot of free chapters. So if you go to my website, I can tell us if you buy the book, go to my website, give me your name and email, and in about a month or two, I'll make sure you receive some free content, some free chapters. The story I just shared about the chalkboard is in that book in greater detail. And it's my desire to partner with you. I may never meet you. I may never know your name. We may never cross paths again. But my desire is for you to walk in the path of a son and a daughter of God. So thank you for your time. I would like to pray over you. And then um, we'll go about our day, okay? So, God, I pray for every son and daughter under the beautiful canopy of these trees. God, that we will believe what you say about us in your word and not what our culture and society, friends, family, strangers, and even, our verse, even ourselves write about ourselves on the chalkboard of our soul. I pray that we will live our life like a son and daughter, that we will know that as we gaze into your eyes in prayer, that we don't look into the eyes of a God who's disappointed. But for those of us in Christ, you are deeply ravished and in love with us because of what you did, Jesus, on the cross. I bless your sons and daughters that they will walk in identity and that they will embrace who you are and who you say they are as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. I'll hang out for a few minutes. If I can do anything for you, if you want to connect, I'd love to talk to you. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Thanks, guys.